This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, January 20th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. As the historic shutdown enters week five, President Trump offers temporary protection for some immigrants in exchange for his border wall. I want this to end. It's got to end now. These are not talking points. But Democrats said no, arguing they won't negotiate until the government reopens. We'll talk with Vice President Mike Pence about that and the president's plans for a second summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Special counsel Robert Mueller makes a rare public statement disputing an explosive report alleging that the president ordered his former attorney to lie to Congress. House Intelligence Committee Chairman California Democrat Adam Schiff and Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy weigh in. And in Syria, four Americans were killed in a suicide attack. We'll talk with Brett McGurk, the former head of the anti-ISIS campaign who resigned last month. He's now warning that the terror group is getting new life. Plus, I will stand up for what I believe in, especially when it's hard. We'll hear from New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who spent the weekend in Iowa after announcing she's running for president. All that coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with Vice President Mike Pence. Welcome and so good to have you here. Yeah, morning, Margaret. You arrived here today with Secret Service agents who are with you 24 hours a day. Right. Are they getting paid during this shutdown? Uh, they're not at this point. And 800,000 federal workers are also going without pay. And if we don't have a resolution, then those paychecks won't go out at the end of this week. But we also have a crisis at our southern border, Margaret, a humanitarian and a security crisis. And as the president laid out yesterday, we're absolutely determined to secure the border, to end the shutdown. And what the president articulated yesterday uh, was a, a good faith, common sense compromise where the president laid out his priorities, building a physical barrier uh, on the southern border, a steel barrier, um, new uh, resources for border patrol, humanitarian assistance technology. But the president also announced that, that he'd be willing to support legislation that provides uh, uh, temporary relief, three years of, uh, of temporary legal status for uh, 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 those in the DACA program and also those who have temporary protective status. It really is an effort uh, to, to uh, compromise, uh, and, and we really look forward uh, to the Senate taking this bill up Tuesday mm -hmm. and beginning to work in earnest, not just to end this government shutdown, which is a burden on the families of 800,000 federal workers, but even more importantly in that, to address the crisis that we face at our southern border. If this is a genuine attempt, why weren't any Democrats included in the consultations for this? Well, uh, Margaret, we, we've been talking to Democrats Who? over the last four weeks. Um, well, first, the president's met repeatedly with Democrat leadership all the way through a week ago last Wednesday. But Democratic uh, le leadership says this is a non-starter. Well, look, uh, that's, that meeting in the Situation Room a week ago Wednesday, the president looked at Speaker Pelosi and said, OK, if I gave you everything you wanted, if I signed legislation for most funding most of the government, mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and had a 30-day extension on Homeland Security. He said to her, I was sitting there, he said, would you give me funding to secure the border and a wall? And she said no. So what the president directed us to do, our negotiation team, was to reach out with rank-and-file Democrats in the House and in the Senate. And what the president presented yesterday really 
is an effort to bring together ideas from both political parties. I, th- I think it is an act of statesmanship mm-hmm. on the president's part to say, here is what I'm for. It includes my priorities. It includes priorities that Democrats had, have advanced for some period of time. And we believe it provides a framework, Which... a framework for uh, ending this impasse, securing our, our border and reopening government. I, I didn't hear you say which Democrats are supporting it, though. Right. And well, you need that. Well, the, the president met uh, this week. We all did with the Problem Solvers Caucus. I think we all know who was there, and, and we were grateful for their presence. But uh, we've, had, uh, we've had good conversations uh, with Democrat members of the Senate. But look, the, their, their leadership has discouraged them in the House and the Senate from engaging the administration. So I want to respect those conversations. But I think what the American people saw the president do yesterday was say, I, I, you know, I, I want to set the table for us resolving this issue in a way that achieves his objectives to uh, secure the border, uh, end the humanitarian security crisis, um, end the government shutdown, but also to, to bring together uh, bring together the Democrats' priorities to accomplish that. That's what the American people expect us to do. And, and honestly, you know, uh, you know, the hearts and minds of the American people today are thinking a lot about it being the weekend where we remember the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. But one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King was, now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. You think of how he changed America. He inspired us to change through the legislative process to become a more perfect union. That's exactly what President Trump is calling on the Congress to do come to the table in a spirit of good faith, we'll secure our border, we'll reopen the government, and we'll move our nation forward, as the president said yesterday, to even a broader discussion about immigration reform in the months ahead. You've said that this is not, this offer on the table is not amnesty. The president this morning tweeted something that I'd like you to clarify, though. He said, amnesty will will be used on a much bigger deal, whether on immigration or something else. Was that an offer for a path to citizenship? Well, I'll, I'll let the president's words stand. But at, do you at know the what end, he meant? At the, yes, I do. What <laughs> at, was it? At the end of his remarks yesterday, he made it very clear that while this proposal is just, it's, look, it's, it's funding to secure our border, uh, to build a steel barrier on the southern border, mm-hmm. to give uh, additional resources that the Department of Homeland Security has requested in terms of personnel and facilities and uh, detection technologies, as well as humanitarian assistance. But the president's also said he's more than willing in this legislation that comes to the floor of the Senate on Tuesday uh, to extend temporary relief to uh, to people that are in the TPS program as well as Three the years. DACA program. But at the end of that speech, I hope the American people heard him. So once we move past this impasse, once we begin to build more trust between the parties, this is a president who is absolutely determined to fix our broken immigration system in this country. But he has always said it all begins with border security. Will he come down from that $5.7 billion ask? Is that also up for negotiation? Well, look, that's the president's request, and the Senate leadership has agreed to bring the bill to the floor with our request for funding for the wall and all the other resources. But look, we recognize uh, the legislative process is a process of give and take. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Democrats want to bring amendments or recommendations forward. I know the president will give them due consideration, but the president is absolutely determined uh, to build uh, a steel barrier on the southern border in the 10 priority areas that the Department of Homeland Security said that we need a physical barrier. It's roughly 234 miles. It's not from sea to sea. It's Mm -hmm. 234 miles of additional steel barrier. Um, and, and frankly, you look back at prior administrations, you know, virtually the, the last four presidents have all built similar barriers on the southern border, including President Obama. And uh, we just want to respond to the needs that we have to secure our border. But uh, once the legislative process goes forward, I know President Trump will be listening to recommendations from the other party. There was an inspector general report this week that said that the Trump administration actually separated far more children from their parents than initially reported, more than the 2,700. In fact, they couldn't put a figure on it. Do you regret that policy? Well, the president reversed that policy. And now we have in place... But do you regret what happened to the more than 2,700 children? I think think we, we regret not only that circumstance, but what's driving... That circumstance. It's one of the reasons why the president had Secretary Nielsen negotiate 
with Mexico that going forward uh, we'll be able to allow uh, families to remain in Mexico while they apply for asylum. And it would obviate the need to bring them into our system that is ill-equipped to handle the extraordinary influx of families and unaccompanied minors that's coming across our border today. A majority of the 60,000 people that are, that are detained attempting to come into our country illegally every single mm-hmm. month, more than 2,000 a day, are now families and unaccompanied children. We now have an arrangement with Mexico where those families can remain in Mexico. The president in his proposal mm-hmm. also recommended that we allow uh, children to apply for asylum in the Central American countries that, look, the human traffickers and the cartels take American cash to to entice families to send uh, either their family or their children on the long and dangerous journey north. We want that to end. These reforms will advance that from ending. But uh, look, it's time for Congress to come to the table. I do want to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do want to ask you a quick, two quick things since it's so rare we get time with you. Uh, Do you care to comment on this BuzzFeed report that the special counsel seemed to have found some issue with, but wasn't specific? What part of this report was inaccurate? Well, the special counsel said that the report of BuzzFeed was inaccurate. And and frankly, the response by many in the national media to take it at face value and engage. Well, what in part a, of it was wrong? In, a, in, in hyperventilating about uh, accusations against the president was really a disgrace. Look, uh, look. But you, but you don't know which part of it. There was is a there is an obsession in this town. Um, look, we, we we fully cooperated with the special counsel. Over a million documents will mm-hmm. continue to fully cooperate. I'll let the special counsel address that issue. The president has maintained that he did nothing wrong. But look, what the American people saw this week was the obsession of many in the national media and, frankly, some Democrats on Capitol Hill to assume the worst about this president. Well, that's and, why I and, wanted uh, to And, frankly, to, we appreciate the special counsel. Uh, well, thank, we appreciate the special you? counsel making it clear that that report was inaccurate. And, uh, and, and look, the, the special counsel is going to complete his work mm-hmm. and... Uh, Uh, We're going to continue to focus on the issues that are most important to the American people. Very quickly, four Americans were killed in a suicide attack in Syria this week. That same day, you gave a speech and said the ISIS caliphate was defeated. Do you regret, in hindsight, saying that? Well, first and foremost... Their deaths seem to contradict what you said. Well, look, first and foremost, um, we're deeply saddened at the loss of these four brave Americans. And we were praying, especially yesterday when the president joined their families at Dover Air Force Base. I mean, their contributions to our national security will forever be enshrined in the hearts of the American people. But look, President Obama withdrew American forces from Iraq. Well, let me be clear. President Obama withdrew American forces from Iraq precipitously in 2011. ISIS rose up virtually out of the desert, overran vast areas of Iraq and Syria. Syria now. Uh, President Obama began a bombing campaign, but when we came into office two years ago today, Mm -hmm. President Trump said, we are going to drive ISIS out of Iraq, we're going to drive the caliphate out of existence. And because of the sacrifices and the courage of people like those four brave Americans, last, the end of 2017, we captured the so-called capital of their caliphate Mm -hmm. in Raqqa. Uh, the, The ISIS state has been defeated. But as I said in that very same speech, the president wants to bring our troops home, but he also wants to make sure that we hand off the fight against ISIS in Syria, what remains of ISIS in Syria, uh, to our coalition partners, and that we continue to support them with American assets in the region. The ISIS caliphate has crumbled uh, thanks to the courage of our armed forces, and our allies mm-hmm. in the region. But America is going to continue to support the effort until we drive any remnants of ISIS from the region and from the face of the earth. Mr. Vice President, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Margaret. Next up, we'll speak to House Democrat Congressman Adam Schiff. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support 
offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. He's a California Democrat and an ally to Speaker Pelosi. Chairman Schiff, welcome to Face the Nation. Thank you. Uh, would you like to respond to anything the Vice President just said about Democratic leadership in response to their proposal? Well, I think the Vice President and President know that what uh, the President announced yesterday was not going to go anywhere. It wasn't really intended to. It was, a, uh, I think, an effort to prop up the President's sagging poll numbers. But it did nothing to get us closer to ending the shutdown. The president announced the shutdown, said he'd be proud of it. He is proud of it. He needs to put an end to it. Uh, and that's what we hoped we might hear from the president. Uh, look, people have suffered enough. Uh, federal employees are going without another paycheck. Uh, I'm going to put an end to this and continue the negotiations. That's what he should have done. That's what a real president would do. Um, but instead, what this is really about is not border security. What it's about is a broken promise uh, that the president made, an oft-repeated, clearly false uh, song and dance act that Mexico was going to build a great, big, beautiful wall and pay for it. So you don't see an opportunity here, an opening for the president to have made this gesture on DACA and TPS recipients getting at least three years of protection? No, it was effectively saying, look, I created a problem by taking away protections for dreamers. I created another problem by taking away protections for refugees. I'm willing to undo part of the damage temporarily that I have inflicted uh, to get my wall. Well, that's really not much of an offer, and it wasn't intended to be. Uh, At the end of the day, what the president wants is to replace one fraudulent promise with another, the promise that Mexico was going to pay, with a promise that taxpayers are now going to pay, but somehow get reimbursed through his new NAFTA. Well, that's as fraudulent as the original promise. How do you interpret the special counsel's statement that seemed to challenge some of the reporting in BuzzFeed that the president directed his attorney to uh, lie to Congress about um, some business dealings in Russia? Well, I assume that this was prompted by the reaction to that BuzzFeed report, but also uh, it may have to do with the special counsel's wanting to uh, be able to use Michael Cohen as a witness in further prosecutions. Uh, and wanted to make sure that the public didn't have the perception that he was saying more than he was saying, at least to the special counsel. But, Margaret, I think we need to pay particular attention to what we do know from the special counsel that was not included in the statement uh, yesterday. What we do know from the special counsel is that Michael Cohen has shared information about uh, core matters of the Russian investigation that he learned from people associated with the Trump organization, the business organization. Uh, We also know from the special counsel that... He has shared information about his communications with people associated with the White House during 2017 and 2018. Now, it was that period during 2017 and 2018 that Michael Cohen was making false statements publicly and to Congress uh, and initially the special counsel about the Trump Tower deal. Uh, so there is a lot more to learn. And Are you still c- going to investigate the claims? Absolutely. Absolutely. Congress has a, has a fundamental interest Uh, In two things. First, uh, in getting to the bottom of why a witness came before us and lied. Mm -hmm. Uh, And who else was knowledgeable that this was a lie? And you will be asking questions of Michael Cohen? Yes, we've given Michael Cohen a date that we'd like him to come in, either voluntarily or if necessary by subpoena. Um, But the, the other reason why we have to get to the bottom of this is Bill Barr testified uh, last week that he would not commit to following the advice of ethics lawyers um, if they urged him to recuse himself, and he would not commit to making the Mueller report public. Now, either one of those ought to be reasons not to confirm him, but the combination of both should be completely disqualifying. Would you subpoena the report in order to make it public? Uh, we will do everything necessary to make the report public, but more than that, because they will fight us on this, we need to do our own investigations, uh, because at the end of the day... If the Justice Department tries to stonewall the release of that report for whatever reason, the American people are going to need to know what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're going to have to press forward. You know, the very reason that that Bill Barr gave for wanting to be attorney general 
that he could help bring a credible resolution to this investigation and ensure confidence in the Justice Department will be impossible, um, given that the public knows he was chosen for his hostility investigation, he's refusing to commit to following the ethics mm-hmm. advice, uh, and should he attempt to bury any part of this report, there's no way that a majority, a majority of Americans will have confidence in the result. If, if the president knew Michael Cohen was going to lie to Congress, but didn't explicitly tell him to lie, is that a problem for you? Is there something you can do about that? What is that classified as? Is that obstruction of justice? Well, if the president knew that a witness was going to lie before Congress but played no role in urging him to lie before Congress, I don't know that it would be a crime. It certainly would be unethical. Um, but this president has done a lot of things that are deeply unethical. Um, but the, the, the question remains, uh, and Rudy Giuliani, uh, I guess this morning, said that he's not writing off the possibility that the president did talk to Michael Cohen about his testimony, mm-hmm. um, or that others may have uh, as well. And we need to know exactly what those conversations were. They're certainly not protected by uh, any kind of a privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone was instructing, whether it was the president or other people affiliated with the White House or the Trump Organization, uh, encouraging a witness to lie, um, we need to know about it. And I will say one other thing. We know that the president's public statements um, have been false as it can, pertains to his business dealings with Russia. Uh, and so the combination of his public falsehoods mm-hmm. uh, with uh, false testimony before Congress certainly contributes to a picture of obstruction of justice. We will continue to track that. Thank you very much, Congressman. Thank you. We turn now to Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy, who sits on the committee responsible for keeping the Department of Justice in check. He joins us this morning from New Orleans. Uh, Senator, would you like to respond to anything uh, that the congressman said there? And, and what is your interpretation of the special counsel's statement regarding this report? My, my understanding, Margaret, and I sat through uh, every minute of the hearing is that there is an FBI rule that says uh, uh, an investigation report is not released. It's given to the attorney general, and the attorney general reports on the report. Now, I've said how I feel about it. I think they ought to release Mueller's report for Mm -hmm. a couple of reasons. Number one, it's going to leak anyway. Uh, Washington, D.C. leaks like the Titanic. And number two, I think the American people have a right to know. Um, if there's a rule that gets in the way, I hope that Mr. Barr will consider consider waiving it. But, in, but is anybody that a, is that a factor uh, in you deciding to vote any, him in for confirmation? No, I think Barr's uh, eminently qualified. And you're a yes, but, vote. but anybody who thinks yes, if any anybody who thinks this report is going to remain. Uh, confidential has been smoking some of that medicinal (laughs) marijuana. (laughs) But back to the question about the uh, report in BuzzFeed regarding whether the president directed his attorney to lie. What do you understand the special counsel's comment on that to mean? I I found that what happened with respect to the BuzzFeed article, um, it was embarrassing. I think the First Amendment was bruised. Look, reporters make mistakes. We all do. Well, BuzzFeed uh, stands by. I I was astonished. I understand. BuzzFeed also uh, has to answer to the fact that the uh, Mueller said it's not true. And and what surprised me was not that somebody made a mistake, intentional or not, but it was just the... uh, It was astonishing to me that so many folks didn't stop and say, hey, you know, let's think about this. Could Mm -hmm. this be true? Who are the sources? Uh, Have these particular reporters had problems before? It was it was almost as if some of the reporting was not reporting. It was wishful thinking. And I think that hurts the First Amendment. Senator, um, I'm coming up against time, so I'm going to ask you briefly, will you vote for the proposal put forward by the president to end the shutdown? Yep. It represents uh, progress, not perfection, but progress. Ms. Pelosi's uh, uh, response was predictable, but I can promise you that the more censorious Democrats right now are glad the president put something on the table. Third point I'll make is I talked to the president about this issue for about an hour last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you bring a plan to him that doesn't include a wall, it's dead as four o'clock. Senator Kennedy, thank you very much for your time.
In our next half hour, we'll talk with a presidential candidate and a former Trump envoy uh, to the coalition against ISIS. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has announced that she's jumping into the 2020 Democratic primary race, and she spent the weekend campaigning in Iowa. So we will ask her why she thinks she should be the next president of the United States. And for the first time since he resigned from the Trump administration, Brett McGurk will tell us about his experience as the head of the anti-ISIS coalition. He will discuss his concerns now that the president has decided to pull out troops from Syria. We'll be right back with more Face the Nation and a lot more in our second half hour. So stay with us. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We now go to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. She's a Democrat from New York and the newest contender in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. She joins us this morning from Des Moines. Senator, welcome to Face the Nation. Thank you, Margaret. You have said that you are a no on the president's proposal here to end the shutdown. Why isn't the offer of three years of protection for DACA and TPS recipients enough of a start for you? Well, he's the one who got rid of DACA protection in the first place. And to offer a temp temporary respite, it doesn't – if you talk to any DACA recipient in America today, they're, they're anxious. They're worried. They're concerned. They might be at school. They don't know if they can finish school. They might be getting married. Like, their lives are being upended, and this president has no compassion. So I don't think you should even consider this because it's three years. It's just DACA. Why not all the dreamers? Why not a permanent pathway to citizenship so they actually can have certainty about their lives? What it really shows is his lack of compassion and empathy for people that are suffering. And I think it's a non-starter. The president said this morning in a tweet that amnesty could be part of a broader deal down the line. Uh, do you take him at his word on that? No, I don't. I don't take him on his word on anything. Um, if he really cares about it, this, he would open up the government, stop the 800,000 people that didn't get a paycheck last week, stop their suffering. Some people can't pay for medicines, food, heat, mortgages, rents. It's, it's, it just shows a callousness that is unacceptable. And so open the government, pay the people, pay our public servants, and then um, get to the business of talking about a comprehensive immigration reform. But to, to start, just to offer him a three-year DACA deal is just not, it doesn't accomplish what we need to accomplish. It's not enough. And I think it's cynical. Uh, an RNC spokesperson issued a statement after you declared your candidacy saying, if you looked up political opportunism in the dictionary, Kirsten Gillibrand's photo would be next to it. From jumping on the abolish ICE bandwagon to turning on the Clintons, she always goes where the political wind blows. How do you respond to that? Well, those are political attacks, so not rooted in any truth. Um, but, you know, I am who I am, and I will fight for other people's kids as hard as I fight for my own. My heart has never changed, and I will fight for people. But some of your I agenda has, which is what they're attacking there. Ten years ago, when I became senator of New York State, a state of 20 million people, I recognized that uh, my focus on 
the concerns of my upstate district were not enough. I needed to focus on the concerns of the whole state. And so on immigration, I spent time in immigrant communities. Uh, Nydia Velasquez took me to her district in Brooklyn, and I met with families whose lives were being torn apart because of policies that I did not have enough compassion and empathy for. So I recognized I was wrong. You sit on the Armed Services Committee. If you are commander-in-chief, would you continue uh, the diplomatic talks with North Korea that the president has started? So I think it is um, helpful that President Trump is focused on diplomacy and not uh, bombing North Korea, because one of his earlier um, thought processes were that he needed to have military action, which caused grave concern in my mind and those of many other senators. So I do think diplomacy and engagement is the right approach. Unfortunately, uh, President Trump, uh, in his first efforts, I think it was much more of a political stunt than effective diplomacy and and political um, dialogue. So you don't Uh, support the second summit? No, I am grateful because he is choosing a path of diplomacy, even if he's not good at it or even if it's not more than a political stunt. I'm still grateful that that is his choice as opposed to bombing North Korea. You have uh, spoken about your agenda, which would include expanding Medicare for all. You had been a co-sponsor on a bill with Bernie Sanders uh, previously that would essentially nationalize health care. That would uh, require an estimated $1.4 trillion a year. How do you finance that? Mm -hmm. The biggest worry almost every family in America has is the cost of health care and that it will be out of reach for them because the insurance industry doesn't care. So the reason why I believe in Medicare for All is I think any family should have access to at least one not-for-profit public option so they can compete with the for-profit insurance industry that just has to make their quarterly profits and pay their shareholders uh, value and make sure their CEOs make millions of dollars. That is not aligned with the goal of universal coverage that's good and affordable. How do you and pay so for it? If you, so let me explain. If you buy into Medicare in the same way you buy into your Social Security as an earned benefit, it is far less expensive for every American than the amount of money they are paying now to the insurance industry. So it will be paid for by each person who wants to invest in their health care mm-hmm. at a far lower rate they're paying today. And so the, the bill that uh, Senator Sanders and, and I and many others introduced, I wrote the part about buying into Medicare uh, because that's what I ran on in 2006 as an upstate New York House candidate in a two-to-one Republican district. It made sense to my voters then. It makes sense to voters across America now. Let them buy in. Let them just invest 4% of income, uh, which is what our bill says, to get access in the same way they invest 6% of their income into Social Security. It's the same earned benefit. If you make it a right in this way, if you create it as a social safety net, people will get higher quality care that is less expensive, and they will always be covered. No insurance company can deny them because of pre-existing conditions. Senator, we'll be watching your campaign. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. Thank you. And we'll be right Thank back. Thank you. I'll see you soon. As the U.S. withdrawal from Syria continued this week, a suicide attack in the northern city of Manbij claimed the lives of four Americans. President Trump traveled to Dover Air Force Base Saturday to pay his respects. It was the deadliest single attack on U.S. forces since the conflict began more than four years ago. CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett filed this report from northern Syria. We joined soldiers of the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces on the front line in the last pocket of ISIS territory to see troops firing a barrage of mortars toward ISIS positions. Right beside them, U.S. forces opening fire, too. Commander Simko Shkak told us the U.S. military has been indispensable in providing artillery and vital airstrikes. Yet ISIS has proven a persistent enemy, launching counterattacks, including truck bombs. And the suicide bombing that took the lives of four Americans and more than a dozen other people, evidence that ISIS is already evolving from a territorial force to an underground terror network, which all makes it harder for America's allies here to understand the decision to withdraw 2,000 U.S. troops at such a critical time. We fought this war together, Commander Nouri Mahmoud told us. America has a responsibility to support us and not suddenly abandon us. They fear that a withdrawal of U.S. forces would leave a security vacuum, allowing Turkey, who sees Kurdish forces as terrorists, to invade, and ISIS to regroup, calling into question the fate of thousands of ISIS detainees held by the SDF. 
In addition to ISIS prisoners is the question of what to do with their families, the wives and children of ISIS who are now stuck in refugee camps, including a lot of foreigners. Children born to the wrong fathers in the wrong place at the wrong time face what everybody here shares, a future that promises nothing but uncertainty. That was Charlie Daggett reporting from northern Syria. We'd like to now welcome Brett McGurk. He was President Trump's envoy to the global coalition fighting ISIS, but he resigned last month in protest following the president's decision to withdraw from Syria. And in an op-ed this week, he warned America's decision to pull out is giving the terror group new life. Brett, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Margaret. Um, the vice president sat here and reiterated that ISIS is defeated. Is he correct? Well, they're not defeated. I've been, I've been part of this campaign for four years across two administrations. We've come an extraordinarily long way. And in 2014, this organization uh, controlled territory of 8 million Syrians and Iraqis. It was committing genocide against Christians and Yazidis and minority groups. It was planning attacks against us in the homeland. It was carrying them out in Paris. It killed Americans in Brussels and Paris. Um, we've come a long way. We have taken away a lot of their physical space. But we always said, and our policy was until most recently, uh, we had to make sure that we uh, completed the enduring defeat of ISIS. What the meant was taking away their physical space and retaining a presence so they could not resurge. And what just happened was that policy was really just reversed overnight. So as a leader of the coalition, we've been telling our partners on the ground and around the world, we built a coalition of 75 countries, um, that we were prepared to stay in Syria for some time. And on instructions from the White House, we were telling them, uh, we'd stay in Syria until we completed the enduring defeat of ISIS, not just the physical territory. Uh, we'd stay in Syria until the Iranians left Syria and also until there was a irreversible uh, political progress in Geneva and the ultimate civil war. Uh, we had told that to our partners on the ground. We had told that to our coalition partners, and it was reversed in a conversation between the president and a foreign leader. Um, you know, leadership, uh, American leadership really counts. Leadership built this coalition. Uh, it led to these gains against ISIS, and leadership requires some presence on the ground and also consistency. And it was the total reversal of our policy that made it, I just, I concluded I could not be effective uh, in carrying out those new instructions. We should point out, you joined the State Department under President Bush. You then served under President Obama and then under uh, President Trump. Can you clarify there? I, I point that out because you serve Democrats and Republicans. Why did you resign specifically? Uh, well, again, I, uh, look, I did. The president has alleged it's political. Well, I've, I've served all three administrations. I've worked on policies that I fully supported. You work on policies during the government that you might not support. You argue your case. Um, in this case, I think the entire national security team had one view, and the president, in a conversation with President Erdogan, just completely reversed the policy. Um, you know, the president has said, I think he's right, you never, you never telegraph a punch when you're in a military campaign. You also don't telegraph your retreat. Um, I've probably traveled to Syria more than any other American civilian official. I know our people in Syria. Uh, I've, my heart is broken, and we're all our thoughts are with the families and loved ones of those just killed. In this campaign in Syria since 2015, we've had two Americans killed in action. We built this campaign plan uh, to answer for those who believe that we should not be overinvested in these conf conflicts. Uh, Americans are not fighting. Uh, we've built a force of 60,000 Syrians to do the fighting. American taxpayers are not spending money on civilian stabilization and reconstruction costs. The coalition is doing that. Mm -hmm. So it was a sustainable uh, campaign plan, and we had the pieces in place as we defeated the physical caliphate to begin a very serious negotiation with some pretty hostile actors in Syria, including Russia. And we had worked with the Russians diplomatically basically to draw lines on the map at the Euphrates River, and we said, look, you don't cross that river. If you cross that river, uh, we'll kill you. And we, ha we have a map we can put up just so people understand that what you're saying is, is actually having a real-world impact on the ground, what President Trump did and possibly lose the territory that the U.S. has cleared out? Well, the minute you say, the minute you announce to the world that you're leaving, um, a vacuum opens up and all the other powers in the region start making different calculations. And we have to work things out in Syria with Russia, and our presence on the ground matters. Mm -hmm. And the two to 3,000 Americans we have on the ground are not just any American soldiers. They are our most elite, uh, most highly trained uh, forces. Again, I visited them from the beginning of the campaign. I was one of the first civilians on the ground way back in the Battle of Kobani. They have done an incredible job. It is those forces that allow the force of the Syrian Democratic Forces with 60,000 Syrians that we have helped build and enable, they allow that force to be effective. If you simply pull out American forces without a plan for what comes next, it is going to open up 
a significant vacuum. Um, I know the vice, vice president said we're going to look for coalition partners to take our place. Um, as the former leader of the coalition, I just don't think that that is credible. Um, I know what it takes in these coalition capitals for them to put their blood and treasure on the line with us. It takes American leadership and it takes American presence. And we've just told the world that we're no longer going to be present. So it'll have a dramatic uh, ramification. And that's why what I wrote in the Washington Post, I think we have to really accept some hard truths. I think, number one, we are leaving. The president's made that clear. We are leaving. And that means our force should be uh, really with one mission, to get out and get out safely. Uh, we cannot add additional missions onto our force while they are trying to withdraw under pressure, because withdrawing under pressure from a combat zone is one of the most difficult military maneuvers we can ask our people to do. And I think what you're sketching out here is, to put it plainly, how we withdraw, except that the president's mind is made up. But one of the issues you have here is that the way the president is doing this puts forces at risk and puts the gains at risk. Am I hearing you correctly? Um, announcing you're going to withdraw and without a plan, and believe me, there's no plan for what's coming next. Uh, right now, we do not have a plan. Uh, it increases the vulnerability of our force. It increases the uh, environment on the ground in Syria. This environment in northeast Syria has been fairly permissive and safe. Again, I've been there almost 20 times, and we have been, been very careful with this. Um, it is cr increasing uh, the risk to our people on the ground in Syria, and it will open up space for ISIS. But what's most important is we cannot expect uh, some, a partner such as Turkey to come in and take our place or another coalition partner to take our place. That is not realistic. And if our forces are under order to withdraw, as at the same time uh, they are trying to find some formula for another coalition partner to come in, that is not workable. That is not a viable plan. So when the Secretary of State says the U.S. military can strike ISIS or any threat in Syria from anywhere, you're saying that's not actually the case. Being on the ground matters. Well, having a presence on the ground is the critical force multiplier that has allowed us to defeat ISIS's physical, physical space, to give us the intelligence to keep pressure on them, and pulling out all of those forces will have a very significant repercussions, which we need to be ready for. Okay. Brad, stay with us. If you would, we'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We're back now with Brett McGurk, and we'd like to also welcome Jason Rezaian to the discussion. He's a global opinions writer for The Washington Post, whose new book, Prisoner, is a gripping account of the 544 days he spent in an Iranian prison. And we have you both here because I think it's pretty interesting for us to talk to you at the same time the guy who negotiated your release <laughs> is to the right of you. I don't think that's happened before. Um, and Jason, it's good to see you in person as someone who covered your captivity. Thanks. Thanks uh, for having me on. One of the new details I learned in the book was just why you were arrested in the first place and one of the more sort of absurd things you were told. The story has to do with avocados. Can you explain <laughs> that? Yes. I, uh, in, in 2011, I, I put up a, a Kickstarter project, you know, the crowdfunding um, website, to, um, to, to raise funds to bring avocados to Iran. I was trying to make a, a point, kind of tongue-in-cheek, about the fact that Iran is a country that's been isolated for so many years, and one of the uh, manifestations of that is that they've been cut off from the world, uh, and the great joys of the world, one of them being avocados. Uh, in the first night of interrogations, I was told that this was definitive proof that I was a spy. They didn't know what an avocado was, what this meant, what this was code for, but it was clearly something very nefarious. And uh, I had to fight against that for, for 544 days. That kind of misunderstanding exactly. as to why you were there. And you, and you write about, I mean, for 40 years now, the, the U.S. and Iran have had extensive uh, tension and arguments for a variety of reasons. One of them, the repeated taking of hostages right. or prisoners. 
but the word hostage was something that your captors really didn't like hearing. No, they, they don't like hearing that at all, and I think you can ask Brett what they think about that term in terms of how they take uh, dual nationals uh, and foreign nationals and, and put them through a quasi-judicial process. Uh, they don't like the, the idea, but I think that it's been a... Uh, as I write in the book, a 40-year industry for them that they continue to do. I'm, I'm part of uh, a long line of people that started in 1979 with our American diplomats that were taken hostage. Uh, and unfortunately, the trend has continued today. Uh, about three weeks from now, the Islamic Republic will be marking its 40-year in existence. Uh, just in the last two weeks, we've, we've heard about another American uh, a Navy veteran being held. So um, it, it didn't start with me. It didn't end with me. Uh, but it's something that uh, obviously is heartbreaking to Americans and, and should stop. Brett, as someone who negotiated with Iran for the release of Jason and others, how difficult is it to actually have a prisoner swap or any kind of agreement? Since we have those Americans there now, do you think enough is being done? Uh, first of all, it's great to be here with Jason. Uh, Jason's book is terrific. It really brings you inside the mind of what Americans are going through in these prisons all around the world. Uh, in our process, uh, it wasn't just Jason, about five other Americans. Jason was facing a potential death sentence. A U.S. Marine uh, had been sentenced to death. It was reduced. He'd be in prison for another uh, five or six years in, a, in an American pastor, similar situation. So my, my negotiation was really the first uh, uh, that I'm aware of with with the really hardline element of the Iranian regime, not uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, President Rouhani, the really hardline element of the, of the regime. We knew when they opened this channel, when I saw who I would be meeting with, yeah, these are the guys that would hold the prison keys um, uh, for Jason and the other Americans. It was an incredibly uh, intense 14-month process. Um, there is absolutely no trust, uh, obviously. Uh, there is extreme hostility. Um, I don't know how many times I walked away from the table, um, ex uh, you know, yelling, raising my voice significantly. Uh, the Swiss helped facilitate this process. We're very grateful for uh, Switzerland. Uh, but they were never in the room, but they'd be down the hall. But oftentimes they would actually come in the room because, um, because it was so heated during these talks. And the Iranians, because there's such a lack of trust, uh, tried to renege on this deal all the way until the, the final moments. And in fact, uh, until Jason and uh, the, the other Americans and Jason's wife, who was a part of the deal, we wrote her into the deal, we're on a plane and out of Iranian airspace, we still uh, did not have confidence that this would actually happen. Um, they tried to renege just the night before uh, we got Jason on a plane, and we mm -hmm. couldn't find uh, Jason's wife. Uh, it was quite dramatic. But that was because of the, uh, the, the fiefdom, the different uh, uh, competition within the Iranian regime itself. You never quite know are you talking to the right guy. In my process, uh, we were talking to the right guy, and um, I was the first American they had ever met, and uh, it was incredibly difficult. But it's the kind of hard diplomacy uh, you have to do to, to get things done in the world. Uh, well, in that swap, one of the things that people remember from that is the fact that you were released the same day the nuclear deal with Iran went into effect and this transfer of money from this financial dispute between the U.S. and Iran went through about $1.7, $1.8 billion and became this legendary story of a plane full of cash. What is the truth there? Yeah, there is so much uh, nonsense about this. So there was a lot of diplomacy going on with Iran at the time. The nuclear track, uh, the track with Jason and, and the prisoners. Um, and then in parallel, uh, lawyers who've been negotiating under the Hague Tribunal for 30 years. We have lawyers at the State Department. They're probably now not getting paid given the situation in Washington. But they've been negotiating with Iran for 30 years on these cases. And the lawyers that did that transaction have been doing these transactions for 30 years. The Iranians have actually paid us $2.5 billion through uh, these Hague settlements. So there was a settlement of a claim that we, the Americans, had to pay Iran. It's $400 million that Iran had given us. Uh, we were going to have to give them that money. There was a question of the interest, and it was settled by those professional attorneys. Uh, this all came to a head at the same time, and um, uh, I was very, as a leader in Geneva at the time, I made very clear I, nothing should happen. But this, to a lot of people, this looks like cash for hostages. To Jason's point, this has been an industry for the country. It was a totally separate, a totally separate negotiation strand. It had nothing to do with Jason's release. But at the end, when the Iranians tried to renege on, on returning Jason or returning his wife, uh, made very clear that nothing should go through on anything until all the Americans are on a plane. Jason, do you think the U.S. government should be negotiating for the release of the Americans who are there now? Without a doubt. I mean, if, if we're not negotiating for their release, they're going to be there for a very long time. Uh, I had a, um, a message from one of the other 
uh, gentleman who was released with me not too long ago uh, when we heard about the, the case of another American being held. And he said, you know, I'm really happy that we got released during the last administration. There is no uh, direct negotiation going on uh, with Iran right now between the United States and Iran. That's one of the byproducts of, um, of the, the Trump administration's decision to leave the nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. And without those sorts of talks going on, there's no way, there's no mechanism uh, to, to, to bring them home. And uh, I think that we have to bring them home. It's, uh, it's an imperative uh, matter of uh, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. right? We don't leave Americans behind. We hear that all the time. The Trump administration has been pretty good about uh, bringing people home from other countries, but Iran is a black spot on their record. Uh, and unfortunately, some of the, the same people who were so adamant about uh, not negotiating with Iran over the nuclear issue while myself and others were being held in prison, have gone completely silent on this issue. And I'd like to bring it back to the forefront. And we if should Jason say, wasn't released at that moment, he'd still be in jail. There's no question. And, and there are still at least four Americans there. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Vice President Mike Pence, California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy, New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and former presidential special envoy Brett McGurk, along with Washington Post writer Jason Rezaian. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can... It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.